Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring the unexplained mysteries of existence in this ineffable universe we call home, as well as everything dark, fringe, or weird in the world. Today on the show, we're going to go into part three of our chronicles concerning the enigmatic and often contradictory Nephilim. Last episode, I didn't really cover as much ground as I wanted, so this may turn into an eight-episode series instead of seven. In this episode, though, we're going to finally finish up the Hebrew version of events concerning the Nephilim, Watchers, and the cataclysm that destroyed the pre-Diluvian world, as well as the fate of Enoch himself. In the lore, the Nephilim can be interpreted very differently depending on the point of view, and we're getting closer and closer to the original accounts that inspired the biblical tales. Were these entities from another dimension? Were they aliens? Were they the offspring of angels? Literal giants? Or could they be forbidden hybrids of gods and mortals? Well, I'll let you decide. The only real objective truth is that there is a sliver of truth in all myth. Because there was indeed a global cataclysm at the end of the last ice age on Earth, and these mysterious beings seem to be directly connected to it. With any objective evidence, lost the time. Well, at least the way that we analyze evidence in modern times, I have come across a lot of people who claim hard evidence and talk about their conclusions as if they're fact concerning the Nephilim. I mean, I started my study on this subject around 13 years ago. But if we know anything at Cryptic Chronicles, it's that things are rarely, if ever, what they appear at face value. So buckle up, because it's time to get weird. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. majority of the Watchers had a pretty dark fate waiting for them, but there were a few exceptions it seems, such as the Archangel Ramiel, and the chief contributor of humanity's corruption, Azazel. Now I know that where we last left Azazel, Archangel Raphael was sent to bring retribution to him. He captured him and is not only his conqueror, but also his jailer deep under the earth in the desert. Well, Azazel pops back up later in the apocryphal texts in a very interesting way. As I said in the last episode, Enoch was so favored by God, or favored by the Elohim, that he was even given a tour by Archangel Uriel through all of the heavenly realms. In fact, the Elohim were such a fan of Enoch, he would be spared death. But not only death as a mortal, 
he would also be raised to something more. Almost universally, archangels are depicted as having specific duties and specializations. They are the rulers or most powerful angels. Unlike the seraphim, cherubim, and the spinning wheel things with eyes everywhere, yeah, there's a lot of cosmic horror-esque angels, but the archangels in particular appear humanoid, easily recognizable, ruling over different paradigms, such as Archangel Mikael, the warrior, Uriel, the archangel of wisdom and science, and yes, I know that he's pronounced Uriel, but I was taught Uriel, and I just want to say things the way I want to say them, so there. And then we got Archangel Raphael, the angel of healing, Gabriel, the archangel of messages and personal messenger of the Elohim, as well as the archangel of water. And as I've already said in the last episode, Ramiel, the archangel of hope. There's more archangels, but I'm sure you get what I mean. They all have like a job. And you'll also notice that all these names end with L the name of the Canaanite creator god. The uh, the Elohim are his children. Uh, him and Asher's children, I mean. But yeah, all the archangels' names end in L, other than one. And this one archangel that its name does not end with the word L is Metatron. When Enoch gets abducted, or taken through the dimensions, or heaven, or however you want to look at things. Enoch, after he's brought back to Earth, he doesn't stay long. 30 days, in fact. In which time he spreads what he learned walking with the Archangels. But after his mission is done, the Elohim straight up abducts him and he never returns to Old Earth. The Prince of Presence, Another name for Metatron is directly related to this story. And according to Enochian lore, which is very vast, you'll find different ideas surrounding Metatron. And it's very clear that Metatron wasn't always a thing. Yet somehow he's perceived as the greatest angel, the highest of the high, even ruling over all of the primordial ancient archangels that came before him and basically all heaven itself. So how did this Metatron go from being nothing to being top dog? It's fascinating, and I'm sure you have already put together that Metatron is Enoch, whose soul was taken by the Elohim and given apotheosis to the most powerful archangel. He went from being a normal human to being one of the most powerful beings in uh, the cosmos and all existence. Years later, another holy man is brought to heaven, just like Enoch once was. And he's greeted by the Archangel Metatron. Metatron gives him a tour and the rabbi gets kind of confused because when they approach the cosmic core entities of the Seraphim, they actually try to attack Ishmael. They don't like him, and uh, he's only saved by divine intervention. But not only do the Seraphim not like Ishmael, 
The other archangels don't like Ishmael either and ask why Metatron has brought him forth before them and why he is worthy to even be there. And the holy man also notices that Metatron's name is analogous to the word youth, even though Metatron seems to be the greatest among them. And when questioned about this, Metatron says that is because he is indeed the youngest angel. He was once the man known as Enoch, and the first human to ever be granted apotheosis into a cosmic entity. Enoch was so favored by the Elohim that he was raised to be the very voice of God, I guess. He went from man to ruler of angels. And Metatron is important in a lot of traditions, and in many points of view, is the closest any mortal will ever actually get to God. And even the angels and archangels and all the divine entities actually need to go through Metatron first. The burning bush that Moses talked to? That was Metatron. And any other time where people claim to have encounters with God is probably Metatron. Which is funny because it's more power than even the other archangels, which are considered to be the most powerful, like Lucifer or Mikael. Uh, it's more power than they were ever granted. And this is just some dude. And it makes sense why the other archangels at first did not like him. But Ishmael goes through the same journey Enoch went through and learns all the ways of the universe and sees all the divine realms. No need to go into the holy man's whole story. It's just kind of a segue into talking about Metatron. Because it's during this apotheosis of Enoch into Metatron that Azazel pops back into the story. And in heaven of all places, far from his desert prison where we last saw him. So I guess Raphael let him out, or just let him out for a while, or I don't know. It isn't explained. But somehow Azazel is not in his desert prison and is in heaven with all the angels. Just go with it. And Azazel is super pissed just at the mere notion that Enoch is in heaven, much less being turned into an angel, much less being turned into the most powerful angel. So to say that Azazel is not cool with this would be a vast understatement and openly opposes it in the divine court, to which the Elohim quickly put him in his place until even he, Azazel, corrupter of humanity, submits to Enoch. Or Metatron, I mean. So who knows what this Watcher's true fate is or was because there's a lot more lore surrounding Azazel. And if you're a fan of the TV show Supernatural, you'll remember Azazel as the yellow-eyed demon, the original villain for the show. Except in actual lore, he is not a demon or was once human at all. But the Watcher responsible for teaching humanity how to make weapons, warfare, and all around manipulate the environment around them to their own advantage. Though, you could always just consider him a demon. And Azazel seems to be one of two watchers not to be permanently locked up. Four reasons were never given. So there you go. 
the fate of the Nephilim and the Watchers according to the ever-contradicting Hebrew lore found in the apocryphal texts, as well as the fate of Enoch and the Archangels, I guess. And from this point on, we're going to leave the biblical and Hebrew stuff behind, though it will probably be mentioned again in reference. But what other interpretations or even other versions of Nephilim exists out there? Well, there's actually a lot of Nephilim lore found in ancient cultures. Same thing, different name. Now, the mainstream scientific term of the Fermi Paradox states that with the massively high amount of hospitable planets in the universe and the universe's age, there should be intergalactic civilizations zooming around everywhere. And that's even without exploring the possibilities behind vibrations and different levels of dimensions and planes out there. Which according to physics is also very possible and the famous Nikola Tesla was a huge proponent of. But according to this Fermi paradox, there should be all kinds of weird stuff out there. But we got radio silence. Why? Why don't other interstellar cultures or interdimensional beings interact with us? The math states that it's impossible they are not there. But no objective contact has ever been made. And this is a question that vexes all mainstream scientists. Well, listen to your intuition and think about how you feel with the idea that the Fermi Paradox is solvable and that there are interstellar civilizations out there. But they just stay away from us to allow us to evolve on our own naturally. <laughs> Which is an interesting thought experiment. But you gotta ask yourself, is it really illogical? Well, what if early on in our development, some aliens were tasked with watching over us, documenting us, while at the same time not interfering with our natural progress? Does that seem far-fetched? What if we humans only document when we can comprehend, coinciding with the accepted trains of thought and the era that we're born into? And we really just document these encounters as best as we can with the limited knowledge and understanding we have. And thinking in this manner, what if these watchers were aliens sent to watch over us? And just like the angelic host from heaven in the Hebrew lore defied their duties and descended to earth to teach us knowledge far above our current development. And then moving on past that, what if these aliens actually bred with humans and led to human-alien hybrids? But before I get ahead of myself, this hypothesis is known as the zoo theory. That yeah, there is tons of aliens everywhere in the cosmos, but... Their technology is just so different and advanced that we just can't even see it. And they don't really interact with humanity because we got to develop on our own. And we're basically a zoo. They just watch us and they document us and, um, you know, do the science stuff. Which honestly, these theories are interesting because if you are a fan of Star Trek, there's the Prime Directive, which basically says the same thing. And all of the Star Trek captains break all the time. But according to this theory, it is a real thing. 
But some people like to say that the Fermi paradox proves that there isn't any aliens out there and that we live in a holographic universe, a simulation. And we've covered the holographic universe before on the show. And yeah, it's a pretty cool, interesting theory, but it's just a theory. So how does this alien theory resonate with you? Do you think that the zoo theory has a uh, credibility to it? Many mainstream scientists cling to it. In the end though, limited minds will always come up with limited solutions. So these things are ineffable to us at the moment. And I could talk about theories all day long, but let's get into some, some human mythology. Across basically all human mythology, there are otherworldly beings who visit early humanity to teach them very advanced knowledge. It's a common theme. And with an objective look at our real world accepted history, there are some interesting questions regarding this. Look at the Sumerians, for example. The Sumerians are our oldest accepted human civilization in history. Somehow, at the dawn of human existence or culture, the very beginning of history, these Sumerians had advanced knowledge of astronomy, literature, the first astrology, and yes, that includes the modern zodiac, advanced mathematics, law, roads, banking, an intricate money system, city block organization, advanced building techniques, medicine, and a plethora of other advanced knowledge far beyond what should be capable of the first human civilization. And not replicated again for thousands and thousands of years. But this isn't only in Sumeria. Gobekli Tepe, uh, Egypt, and many other earliest civilizations have incredibly advanced knowledge that would not be seen again once their prime was over until the Renaissance or modern times. So how is it exactly that humans went from being hunter, gatherer, primitive barbarians to instantly advanced civilizations? Only then to degrade with uh, slight rises back to degrade again until modern times. But then again, we don't even have modern technology that can replicate things the way they did it. And then there's more too, like the, the lesser known anomalies, such as the Yonaguni Monument and the perfect alignment of ancient structures in line with the Earth's geometric grid from cultures that never even interacted with one another, all linking up. With many of these monuments so accurate, you can't even slide a razor blade between the masonry. It requires big bucks and ridiculous effort to do that with our modern tech. But the ancients were doing it at the dawn of civilization. It is all so incredibly baffling to say the least. But it's getting to be that time, isn't it? I'm going to take a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles.
Hi there. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicle. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicle. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show, but most of all, thanks for listening. like a pretty bizarre and unexplainable ancient stuff it makes you wonder exactly just how did these ancient civilizations start off at the dawn of history with all this crazy technology well the theory is that maybe those early cultures were the remnants of a lost civilization or lost civilizations that were destroyed in cataclysm Or maybe it's along the lines of uh, the many myths that state that we were taught advanced knowledge beyond us by outside sources, which would perfectly fall in line with the Watcher myth. And with the statistics and science and the Fermi paradox and whatnot, is it really that out there that we might have been visited by aliens in our ancient past? I mean, I know that this is not mainstream science at all, and it never can be. But despite all that, I mean... Carl Sagan himself did a lot of work on this type of thing, and there's been a lot of semi-modern anthropological discoveries that bring into question the mainstream narrative. To dismiss the ancient mythologies is to dismiss what little remnants we have concerning our forgotten history. But there is plenty of clues lying around concerning our ancient cultures. In West Africa resides one of the oldest and untouched cultures on Earth called the Dogon tribe. When this tribe was discovered all the way back in 1931, it was one of the greatest anthropological discoveries of the age, and still holds many mysteries about it. The Dogon had advanced knowledge of astronomy that even outclassed the modern world. They knew things about space that even modern science at the time had no idea about. They told the French anthropologists who discovered them information that could not be verified back then. But as our modern technology grew, everything the Dogon said about the cosmos was proved completely correct. For example, they talked about white dwarf stars. We didn't even know what the hell a white dwarf star was until decades later. But the Dogon knew. 
We didn't know the details of the constellation of Sirius, but somehow the Dogon knew. And they had all of this unexplainable knowledge with precise astronomical calculations. But one of the most fascinating things about the Dogon is that they had a myth similar to the Watchers from Hebrew lore, with beings that called themselves the Nomos descending from the sky to teach them advanced knowledge. The Dogon say that the Nomos descended from heaven in, and I quote, a vessel that was accompanied by fire and thunder. The Dogon claim that all their knowledge came from these beings from the stars. The Nomos coming from Sirius B and Sirius A, with Sirius B not even being visible to the physical eyes. And we only have modern technology capable of being able to see it. It is literally impossible and unexplainable that this ancient, secluded, untouched tribe throughout history had this advanced knowledge beyond modern science, not only at the time, but all the way up until modern times. The Dogons say that three aliens appeared to them in aquatic nature, the Nomos. They seemed to be like humanoid fish people for the most part and wore bizarre spacesuits that are still replicated to this day in the tribes of spiritual ceremonies. Robert M. Schock, I hope I pronounced that right, an author and intellectual argues that the Dogon were originally Egyptian and carry with them Egypt's original culture, which I'm sure is highly controversial but he does have some plausible or at least seemingly plausible evidence to back up his theories and will admit that if even if they uh even if they uh are not purely originally egyptian culture they carry remnants of it which i'm sure brings up many questions but everything about the dogon just leads to more questions because if they were originally egyptian then they are actually earlier an earlier form of uh, the culture that is lost to historical knowledge. This may sound kind of strange, but then again, the Sphinx does have water erosion on it and also has been concluded to be far, far older than the mainstream Egyptologists would care to admit. They don't like it because there's much more to Egypt that goes against the mainstream narrative, which disgusts Egyptologists because they not only have their egos wrapped around all their information, but they also have a lot of money wrapped around it, which pretty much has brought all uh, archaeological and anthropological research into Egypt to a complete halt. Anything that goes against the accepted narrative that they've said to the rest of the world and they have all their money invested in is suppressed. And I mean, who wants to rewrite all those books and not look like the expert you always claimed to be? They straight up don't allow research that may go against the grain. But the conclusion is basically that the Dogon tribe is super bizarre and should not exist. However, their alien tale is unique compared to Enoch's because from what I could find, they have no tales about abductions or things that could be translated as abductions. They only talk about the sky gods coming down to teach them advanced knowledge. 
not taking anybody up with him. And though a lot of mainstream people scoff at abductions, but is stuff like being abducted, like, is it really that out there? I mean, look at all the people who mysteriously vanish in the national parks all around the world. It's crazy high numbers. Look at just the, the sheer amount of children that go missing every year. It's crazy high and no one bats an eye. In fact, so many people vanish from national parks across the US alone, the government doesn't even bother to keep track. And we're talking hundreds upon thousands of people vanishing in bizarre, unexplainable ways that straight up go under the radar of mainstream society. And if you don't believe me, go research it. That be facts. But the real question is where the hell do these people go? Especially the kids. Like look at the pandemic death numbers from uh, the Rona. That's nothing compared to all these missing people in just a single year. And there is zero effort to discover what's behind all these vanishings. Now I've covered a lot of ET lore, maybe more so in articles, but I've covered a lot of the UFO phenomenon in the past. And there's certain groups of researchers who believe that Eisenhower made a deal with aliens that are dicks. This deal was mainly for technology leading to our technological abundance in modern times. But the drawback was that the aliens could abduct humans as much as they want and no one would do anything about it. This has no evidence to back it up, obviously, at least that I know of. But it's freaky to think about though, isn't it? Doesn't seem too far-fetched of what the uh, 1% are capable of. But my, my point here is just that there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on underneath the radar to the masses and... I guess globally for that matter. And abduction is a theme with the Nephilim and Unaki or any of these aliens that could be comparable. However, just why would aliens even care about abducting us in the first place? In the UFO phenomenon, it's commonly genes, our genetics, our DNA. But what about just experiments? Well, let's keep in mind that the Watchers came down to Earth specifically to have sex with human females and straight up reproduce with them. Concerning myths that are similar to the Nephilim, just how many of these myths involve abducting humans in one way or another? Just how many are analogous to the Nephilim? Because the abduction of humans seems to be a part of myth from all around the world. There's even people who claim that the archangels that took Enoch through the heavens were actually ETs. And the means that they transported him or journeyed through the heaven, I guess, was actually them taking Enoch on a journey through the cosmos in a straight up spaceship. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, back in April, the Pentagon officially acknowledged the existence of UFOs. Not aliens, but UFOs. And if you think I'm full of it, go look it up, I'm not joking. But I don't really think that humans are prepared to open up that Pandora's box. It makes total sense that aliens avoid exposing themselves to us. Maybe, and I say maybe, 
10% of the general population is ready to encounter aliens. And I think that's actually being kind of generous. What would you do if you were uh, ever abducted? Would you tell anyone and ruin your entire life, your social life, your career, your standing in whatever professional field you're in? Would you ruin all that? Or would you just shut up and keep it to yourself and continue to live your life in the same way that you're used to without society and all of everyone who knows you coming down on you? People who are victims of groupthink will all attack what is the other. So think about it. What would you do if something like this happened to you? What would you do if, if you were shown vast knowledge far beyond the understanding of a common person? Seen things unexplainable and technology so far beyond what we're used to, it would be like magic. What would you do? Could you go on living? the same way that you did before? Don't get me wrong, though. I'm not trying to tell you that any of this is real or that you should believe it. I don't hinder myself with something as limiting as belief because it gets in the way of objective research and conclusions. You should just make up your own mind about it and think whatever you want. I hold free thinking in utter reverence. So it brings to life a lot of these alternative views, such as uh, Zachariah Sitchin, but um, probably the most famous person to bring the uh, ancient astronaut theory to the mainstream would be Eric Von Daniken and his legendary book, Chariot of the Gods. And a little known fact, Mr. Daniken is also the nicest guy you will ever meet in the world. When he was young, he visited Egypt and all the mysterious locations across the planet. Danikin says that his interest in ancient aliens was inspired by a vision when he was very young, which is pretty cryptic and esoteric, but he also had many other influences, with one of his biggest being a book called The Morning of the Magicians, which was written by occult investigators. And <laughs> surprisingly, ET research and occultists actually cross paths more often than you'd think. The notorious Alistair Crowley himself documented contact with an alien that perfectly resembles our modern day view of the ET race known as the Greys. But the book basically claims that a lot of what we know about history is outright wrong and shines a light on the limitations of our science. The book also talks about the Watchers and how there's a very real conspiracy to keep the knowledge of them from the public. But let's not go into that book just yet, if we do at all. Um, instead, let's look into the different cultures around the world of the ancient world and uh, see where we can find analogous stories in myth to the Nephilim. And we'll get into it after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Hello, my name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm a Loch Ness monster. 
Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time, and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. Let's uh, let's start off looking into Babylon and see if we can find anything resembling the Nephilim in their mythology and history. And I'm sure that you're familiar with Babylon, but if you aren't, it was basically a superpower of the ancient world. And actually, the place where much of the Old Testament of the Bible was actually compiled all into one book because the Hebrews were exiled there for a long time. The Babylonians greatly inspiring their mythology, greatly influencing the Bible, along with the Canaanites and a lot of the other uh, ancient powers of the Near East. The Talmud Bavli, sacred Babylonian scriptures analogous to the Bible, looked at the Nephilim and Watchers both as divine entities, 
Marduk, the god of Babylon, was a Nephilim and was actually the heir to one of the Watchers. Or, I mean, they didn't, they didn't call them Watchers. That's just analogy. These beings had many names. Uh, the most recognizable you might have is the Anunnaki. According to Babylonian myth, these gods descended from the sky and were responsible for establishing human cities because before, there was none. The gods actually used the blood, or DNA, of one of their own to create humans. Marduk in particular, who had a bunch of eyes making him look kind of alien, used the blood of the, I guess his mother Tiamat, but depending on what myth it is and what version of Marduk, it is the blood of the ancients, usually the enemy of the faction that they were fighting, the leader of the faction, which, uh... In Babylonian is Kingu, but after he was done and he created the land out of Tiamat and humans out of the blood of Kingu, he rose back up into the sky to rule there. And there's many different myths that are similar that just have their own unique spin on things. The tablets we have concerning the Babylonian creation story are probably the ones that are the best condition and most legible. But there were many powers in the ancient Near East that all fought for influence back and forth, not just Babylon. The Syrians, for example, had a massive ancient empire. They pretty much had the first professional recorded army in history, with their patron god, Assur. In Mesopotamia, there were many city-states similar to Greek city-states in the way that we would think of them, like Yamad, Marie, Larsa, Isin, the Akkadians, the Sumerians in Babylon, all these people were going at it. With, of course, the Hittites too coming in to ruin all of their fun. But in the aftermath, the Assyrians would rise, and it turned out that they were huge dicks who casually used terror tactics that would make any horrific warlord blush. However, my point is just that all these people were Mesopotamians and shared a similar culture. They may have spread out and left the area that birthed them or people who came in from outside, such as the Caucasus, but they all shared the Mesopotamian Sumerian culture to a degree. And the Assyrians' main god Asher is interesting because the tree of life is associated with him directly, a term and idea that the Hebrews adopted eagerly. Though the tree of life seems to have been around since the dawn of history in all myth and it's not unique to Ashur at all. It's found in... It's even found in, in all the way over in Scandinavia. But it's basically a universal idea, myth, form. But sadly, very little is known about Ashur. In truth, even back then, there was very little unique to Ashur. And the deity seemed to change over time because originally it, he didn't even have a family. Or pantheon, I guess, but... When the Assyrians replaced other cultures' gods with Asher in a copy-paste manner, he kind of absorbed a lot of the themes of those cities or the patron gods or their mythologies and whatnot. So the original version of Asher is kind of lost to time. And when Babylon was conquered, he even replaced Marduk and Enlil. Oh, I don't think I mentioned Enlil. Don't worry about Enlil, I'll get to him. My point is just that all these civilizations shared very similar mythologies analogous to Nephilim, 
and Ashur has tons of similar gods with similar names among many cultures such as Enhur, Ahura Mazda, Asura, Asur, and the Viking Aesir, with Asur essentially meaning God universally across all of these similar names. So the Assyrians essentially named themselves the God People, if translated correctly. And the Nephilim lore was core to their culture. And like all the cultures of the ancient world, Babylon also had a flood myth. In the Babylonian flood myth, the Ark is 14,000 by 400 cubits. In the Simmons, the Ark is round, also with 14,000 by 400 cubits. And in the Hebrew myth, the Ark is a normal boat being 1,500 cubits. So these cultures' myths are all crazily similar and coincide with one another. This, according to Jungian psychology, is attributed to the collective unconscious, humanity's shared subconscious memory. But the Nephilim also even show up in European myth. There are similarities phonetically with all these deities all over the world. As I've already said, the similarity of the Viking name for God and the Assyrian one is, uh, hard to believe to be coincidence. And then there's the Greek mythology of the gods, with uh, the Greek gods actually having a tight link to the Watchers, uh, Nephilim, Anunnaki, all that good stuff. And the Olympian pantheon as a whole were all usurpers, with the Greek flood myth also being extremely similar to the Hebrew flood myth. The Titans coming before and being similar to the Watchers and their children, the gods, the Nephilim. Or I guess the Titans themselves could also be seen as possible Nephilim. And many were banished in a similar place as described by Enoch, uh, the Greek underworld realm of Tartarus. It's uh, similar to the hell prison that the Watchers are placed in as described in the Book of Enoch 2. Unlike the gods, though, the Titans were pretty low in number, being only around 12 strong, and the children of two greater primordial gods known as Uranus and Gaia, which could be similar to, I guess, possible Watchers, I guess. And in later episodes, when I get to Atlantis stuff, the Greek gods are going to pop back up. But they're gonna pop back up a couple of times, so if you're into that, just uh, look forward to it. And then there's the Canaanites and Phoenicians. Now, the Canaanites are key to understanding Nephilim lore from a Western perspective. Though the Canaanites were not a unified people, and uh, in any way that we would think of like a unified nation, but a bunch of different peoples just having a similar culture. And technically, what would become the Hebrew civilization were actually once Canaanites, as I said in the first episode of this series. I mean, the Hebrew creator god El was directly lifted from the Canaanite pantheon, or Elion. If you go back far enough, there's little difference between the Hebrews and Canaanites. Baal, one of the Canaanite gods, um, also called Baal, which is the way I prefer to pronounce it, is the prototype for the lightning god across all cultures, globally. I mean, there were a couple other 
sky lightning gods before him. But when you think of like Zeus archetypes, people throwing lightning bolts or whatever, that's Baal. Just a different form, different name. But if we're talking about the Canaanites, we also got to talk about the Phoenicians and even to an extent, the Carthaginians. Some people even like to say that Jesus himself was a Phoenician and learned a lot of his spiritual teachings, not only from them, but also in Egypt. However, despite Baal being the main lightning god across Canaanite culture, Baal is also just simply a title. And like many cultures in the Near East, the Carthaginians also had a pantheon of gods just directly lifted from the Phoenicians and Canaanites, with Carthage actually being a pretty long-lasting empire that was all the way around until Rome started to rise and even could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Rome for a while in open warfare, which is no small feat to say the least. But their religion, these Canaanites and the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, it's all the same religion, basically. You know, different spin as always, but same themes. The Carthaginian religion influenced the entire ancient Mediterranean world and Africa. In Carthage, Baal was an amorphous god with many distinct aspects separate from one another, which replays itself in India and in other religions across the world, but I don't want to get too into that. My point is just as you can see, the Elohim have had a global influence across countless cultures including the Greeks, Celts, and pretty much the entire classical ancient world. And there's so much more to the Hebrew Nephilim than meets the eye. This is because the Nephilim and Watchers, the names or the ideas, they originate from the Elohim and the Canaanite god El, which also originate from older myth. And it's all just pretty mind-blowing. But if the Hebrews got their main sources from the Canaanites and Phoenicians, where did the Canaanites and Phoenicians come from? And who influenced them? Well, Mesopotamia, of course. And Canaan was also ruled by Egypt for a long time, which had a huge influence on it. It's a, a mix of Egyptian and Sumerian cultures, uh, mythologies, and legends mushed together. And these people were all Semites, a group of people from Mesopotamia. A Semite is a, a member of a people speaking phonetic languages, presumably derived from a common language, and this includes the Arabs, Akkadians, Canaanites, Hebrews, some Ethiopians, and even other Africans. The Caucasians from the Caucasus also have a pretty big influence to play in the Near East, believe it or not, because if you look at the location of the Caucasus, it's literally just north of Sumeria. But uh, let's, let's move on and talk about Egypt. Because with ancient Egypt, we're getting closer to the origin of the Watchers and Nephilim. And uh, the home of many esoteric beliefs across the world. Egypt is the source of all Western and many more wisdom traditions and mystery schools. It's the source of philosophy, uh, even hermeticism, and all the wisdom traditions basically originate in Egypt. 
The influence of Egypt on the world is unparalleled and far more than any ordinary person would ever know. Ancient Egypt is also horrifically misunderstood because it is so old and there have been so many different eras or periods and uh, they're all very different, yet just overlapped upon one another according to historians. Some being older than recorded history itself, Egypt is basically an endless abyss of mysteries. The gods of Egypt may not be as, uh, as physical or egoic as many of the gods that were used to in pantheons from other cultures. They're known as the Netter, the gods of Egypt, the Netiru, but the Netter are not a pantheon as we would think. Um, there are two forms of religion and spirituality in Egypt. There was the profane version for the, you know, the masses. And then there was the esoteric version for the priesthoods and the people who were worthy of it, the knowledge. And this goes back all throughout history. There's two forms of almost every single type of religion. There's the open one for the masses, and then there's the more secretive version for the people who are higher up on the spiritual tier or have proved themselves worthy of the information. Or the priesthood, or the rulers, or the elite, you name it. This is a pretty consistent theme. And I'm sure I don't have to elaborate any further. But the netter are natural laws of the universe, or laws of nature, given form. The forms we call the Egyptian gods are just personifications of those laws and exist in a way that mortals can understand and they weren't necessarily gods as in the way we would think. Depending on what era of Egypt and uh, who is ruling and what time in history we're talking about, this can change a lot. But overall, this is basically what the Netter were. They were a personification of natural things in the universe. Though, if you do go back super far, the gods did walk among humans just like any living being from mythology would. So it's abstract and confusing, and I can't really think of a way to tell you for it to make sense. It makes sense to me, but I can't explain it. But the way that uh, the Netter were looked at was very unique because in ancient Egypt, people believed that anyone could become one of the gods if they harmonized with the laws of nature. It was a, a source energy of the Netter could be tapped into through breath, the gift of life, and through proper rituals as well. The god forms were just manifestations of the laws of nature mortals could comprehend, while also still taking physical forms at times in the ancient history. Though this will be contradicted later in the series, uh, they essentially did worship like a source energy from the sun. That's what Ra represented. It is essentially like uh, matter. Well, not matter. Um, everything that the universe is made of, the ether, all the planes, physical planes, spiritual planes, everything, it's all the same substance to the Egyptians. And the substance is the light. It's the source energy. And that's what they worshiped at their heart in the real Egyptian religions, if you get my drift, which is interesting and goes completely against the mainstream view of them. Though, like I just said, there will be contradictions later. 
However, based off of my research, and I own some pretty expensive books concerning Egypt. One's 200 bucks, but uh, this is legit. Their main religion was all about source energy. This is where the term as above, so below comes from, and why astrology makes sense to them. And yeah, the Egyptians had astrology. But it's because this current of the gods flowed through the heavens, stars, galaxies, rivers, and even individual people. It was all the same stuff, just taking form differently in a subjective manner. And the universe or existence as a whole was just uh, like the macrocosm, and a human was a microcosm. So everything in the universe was represented in a human as well. Which may sound kind of weird, but they believed it. And that's not to say that the god forms couldn't manifest at all, but at its heart, the ancient Egyptians believed in Ra, which was the symbolic embodiment of the source, source energy, the all, everything, the very essence of material matter that brought form both to the physical and non-material universe. And I know that a lot of you might be thinking this goes against what you may have been taught about Egypt, but everyone for the most part has been taught wrong about Egypt, so it's not a big deal. But the Netter are unique concerning ancient gods of the classical age because they referred to the dead as the Netter. People who died basically could become the Netter. With some humans like Thoth, or that's his Greek name, his Egyptian name is Tehuti, but there's even tales of mortals like Thoth being raised to godhood. And I know that there's plenty of different ways to pronounce his name. Uh, tote, tot, toth, uh, like there's so many. Um, when I was growing up, a little kid reading about Egypt, researching it all on my own, because that's just the kind of kid I was, in my head it was pronounced Thoth. So whenever I mention him throughout this entire series, I'm going to say Thoth, because that's how I like to pronounce it. Or I might pronounce it as Tehuti. Anyway. Thoth is one of these humans who was deified to become one of the Netter, though there's myth and versions of that spirituality that goes back even further that Thoth was actually a part of the creation of the universe. So it's all very confusing and contradicting, but uh, <sighs> you might be wondering what the hell this has to do with Nephilim. Why am I talking about Egypt like this? And what does it have to do with the Watchers and any of that? Well, that's because the gods of Egypt are not only manifestations of the natural laws of nature, but also exist in human consciousness itself. Think about that. The Netter exists in all the universe, manifesting in all the universe, including your brain. How did these ancient cultures pop up with super technology and no advanced knowledge of astronomy and whatnot all at the dawn of history? Well, <laughs> it's because the gods exist in your brain. This is one of the reasons of why the ancient world was, or the beginning of human civilization was just so advanced compared to the rest up until, of course, modern times. I'm not saying this is the reason or it's true, but it's one of the theories concerning the uh, 
archetypes, which goes with Union psychology. Essentially, the gods could easily generate knowledge through human consciousness at will, because they exist in our collective unconscious. And yeah, yeah, what does this have to do with Nephilim, right? Well, when we get into the Atlantis stuff later, especially concerning Thoth, Thoth is supposed to have taken the original religion to Egypt. Which is what I'm talking about. So essentially, this Egyptian religion of source energy, if we're to believe this uh, view concerning Egypt, this is the religion that was brought down from the ancients, that was brought down from the Anunnaki, the Watchers, the Nephilim. This source energy worship is their religion. Anyway, there's also some specific mentions of the Watchers from Egyptian culture, specifically the ancient papyrus of Ani, in which the Watchers are mentioned by name. I quote, Deliver thou the scribe of Nebesni, whose word is truth, from the Watchers, who carry murderous knives, who possess cruel fingers, and who would slay those who are in following of Osiris. May these Watchers never gain the mastery over me, and may I never fall under their knives. End quote. Yeah, that doesn't sound like they liked the Watchers very much, or at least whatever faction was attacking them. The text goes on about Osiris and asking for protection, and, uh, yeah. Egypt was referred to as a land of Nephilim in ancient times by the children of Ammon. It stands to reason that these Nephilim could also have built large structures. In theory, these were the builders of the Great Pyramids and the Sphinx. Moses also spoke of giants in the days of the journey out of Egypt. And remember that the word giant is often a mistranslation of the word Nephilim. So it would seem that the Egyptians might have suffered under... Uh... One of the other kingdoms of Nephilim. Maybe even one of the most greatest or most powerful considering Egypt's insane advanced technology at the dawn of history. But there is a lot of mystery here still, and this cannot be looked at in any objective way. But there's plenty more giant or Nephilim mysteries found in Egypt. Allegedly in 2012, 24 giant coffins or tombs were discovered, or rediscovered I should say. But they were, according to Egyptian history, discovered by Ramses II some 3,300 years ago. The mainstream theory regarding the boxes is that Ramses II built the burial site. But according to many, it's more likely that the ancient Egyptians just merely discovered the site. And they are massive tombs or coffins. We're talking, uh like a hundred tons each. So just how could the ancient Egyptians move over 24 tombs that weigh roughly a hundred tons? There's a lot of paradox somewhere in there. But mainstream archaeology claims that the burial site was for Apis bulls, and that Egyptians believed that the Apis bulls were incarnations of the deity Ptah. But were the bulls supposedly only incarnations? Or were the bulls actually chimeras? 
something we'll get into down the line concerning the genetic experiments of the Anunnaki. However, concerning these massive tombs, some experts are claiming that the Egyptians did not build the boxes at all, but they were rather left on Earth by aliens. Interestingly enough, that actually makes more sense than the mainstream theory. <laughs> that the Egyptians built these tombs with copper hand tools. In any case though, according to Nephilim lore, Old Earth Egypt was a hub of Nephilim power over humanity. And it's time to bring this episode to an end, but we are getting closer to the source of Nephilim, the Watchers, and the Elohim. In the next episode, we're going to explore the Nephilim in more cultures mythology, as well as what I've been looking forward to this whole time, the Atlantis myth. And we're going to be one step closer to the source of Nephilim lore and a possible alien connection. all for this episode thank you so much for listening cryptic chronicles is available on itunes stitcher podbean spreaker google podcasts pandora whatever you name it if there's podcasts we're there right now if you really love cryptic chronicles i really need good reviews to help uh, up the numbers of downloads we're doing pretty good in other countries, but for some reason in the US, we're not really making the cut yet. So please, if you can, leave a good review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. It would basically mean that we're best friends forever, and that's not a bad thing because I am really good at high fives. Make sure to subscribe on all of our social media accounts. Uh, follow us on Facebook, specifically come join the facebook group and we can show you all of our weird stuff check out the cryptic chronicles youtube channel it's pretty awesome shout out to the patrons mark lane angie allen thank you kenny of course kenny is awesome liana watts stephanie wilkie linda gonzalez paul of course paul the mighty and our newest patron megan Megan, thank you. I was so happy when I saw that. Hope you enjoy all the goodies. If you'd like to become a supporter of Cryptic Chronicles, then go ahead and just uh, click on the Chronicles vault at crypticchronicles.com. At the top, you can't miss it. 
By supporting us on Patreon, you will not only be one of the most badass, awesome people who ever lived, but you will also have all kinds of good karma coming your way. Because though this show is free to listen to, the cost to make it is substantial, to say the least. And I really appreciate it. Anyway, let's get out of here, huh? Thank you for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm your host, Tim Hacker. And as one of the greatest writers who ever lived once said, the difference between fiction and reality? Fiction has to make sense.